we, uh, we're going to try to do some impossible things tonight. I said a couple weeks ago, we're going to try to get through an entire chapter of Scripture in one night. So uh, there's certain people in here who will be, we're going we're gonna to gag them with, uh, with duct tape. See if we can make it happen. Here's where we've been in our continuing audio commentary on the book of Matthew. In, in chapter 13, we've covered quite a few parables. This was Matthew's collection on the parables about the kingdom. So we've covered the parable of the sower, the weeds, the net, the mustard seed, the yeast, the treasure, and the pearl of great price. Tonight, we're going to look at Jesus in Nazareth. We're going to look at the story of John the Baptist being beheaded, Jesus feeding the 5,000, and Jesus walking on the water. The reason I think we can get through a lot of this is because most of this is Matthew's narrative description of events, and there's less of the difficult sayings, but there's still some very valuable stuff in what we're about to cover. Let's move forward. Last week we had a little bit of a rough patch where we were trying to cover this question. What is the kingdom, and is it synonymous with salvation? Well, I'm just throwing that up there to tease you. I'm not going to actually answer it till the end. So I'll reward you if we can get through most of the material, then maybe we'll come back and have a full-on smackdown over this issue as we started to last week, okay? We'll see how we do. But uh, that's just out there, a little chum in the water for you sharks are going to swim around, all right? Let's just see how that goes. Let's, uh, let's look at the end of chapter 13, starting in verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they ask? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown and his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. We, in an earlier series, had covered this issue about faith related to miraculous power. There's kind of a tie there, but I really want to point out that mostly what's happening here is Jesus is being rejected, and that's the main point that Matthew is putting up. Remember, Matthew is going to present a number of different reactions to the gospel. So here his main point is to try to represent, well, what was the reaction in his hometown? And he has Jesus giving this explanation of a prophet being without honor, not being accepted in his hometown, partially, I think, to rebut some of the things that are going to be asked. Well, wouldn't a prophet normally be accepted by the people who know him most? And Jesus is, of course, probably citing a Kind of a saying that's probably known to people that a prophet is not accepted in his own hometown, and here he's not. The strange part about this little snippet that we just looked at is Luke has a parallel passage, but it happens much earlier in Luke's arrangement of the text. If you skip over to Luke 4 at some point, you want to look at it, this is the place where Jesus appears in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and he basically tells them that you know these things are being fulfilled in their hearing, he starts to tell them some other things they don't like. When it says here that they took offense at him, if this is the parallel of Luke 4, and there is an if, some people say maybe he went to Nazareth a couple times and got rejected. But if this is the parallel of Luke 4, they took offense at him would be an understatement. They actually tried to throw him off a cliff. You know, they were so angry with him. So that's one way, and then people debate, is it the same, is it not? We're reading through Matthew's Gospel, so we'll leave it there. The main point is, Matthew's trying to show one response to Jesus. Okay? Let's move forward a little bit into chapter 14. Back when we first started looking at the book of Matthew many, many, many eons ago, we looked at the story of John the Baptist. And we saw John the Baptist being the person who was preaching, the precursor, in a way announcing Christ. We saw later that Jesus says, if you accept it, this is the Elijah who is to come and to foreshadow the Messiah. We saw John in prison elsewhere in our talks, kind of in anguish and in doubt about whether Jesus really is the one, despite the fact that he heard from heaven that Jesus is the one. And now we see the death of John the Baptist, starting in chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, in our text, John hasn't died yet, so what's he talking about, John the Baptist, 
being Jesus and all that kind of stuff. What Matthew's about to do right now is kind of do a flashback. All right? So he's done one of those things that some of these new series on TV do where they show you the end, you know, and then they kind of flash back and say two weeks earlier. Right? So that's kind of what's happening here, is he's highlighting this fear that when Herod hears about Jesus, he thinks this might be John the Baptist resurrected, one of his worst nightmares. Why is it one of his worst nightmares? Here's the flashback that Matthew presents. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl, who carried it on to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. That's the last we see of John the Baptist in our text. Um, one of the things to point out about this text with this is Herod, and there's other instances in the other Gospels that talk about this, and it's also a historical fact. Josephus writes about this event as well, and at least the, the, the relationship between Herod and his wife or his, for his brother's wife and their daughter. And I just want to point out that one of the interesting things about this Gospel writer and others is that they write about historical issues that we can go back and verify. So that's just a side footnote to throw out. There's another thing to point out, which is the beheading of John by Herod is not only a cowardly act, because he doesn't like the fact that John is denouncing that he's married to his dead brother's wife. He's also beheaded in an illegal fashion. He doesn't have a trial here, and he's beheaded, both of which, not having a trial and being beheaded, were not legal under the Jewish law at the time. So clearly... That's why earlier when we see that he thinks that maybe Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected, he's kind of worried because he's done this illegal thing to silence somebody who's been criticizing him. He's worried. The people are saying John is a prophet. He beheads him illegally just to shut him up, basically, and in a cowardly act to kind of uphold his oath so he doesn't look bad in front of his guests because he said, I'll give you whatever you want. So when he starts to hear about Jesus doing all these miraculous things, he thinks, Oh no, this couldn't get any worse if that was John the Baptist somehow come back from the grave. Like he's thinking, maybe I'm next. Historians say that sets up a a kind of a strange thing where Jesus begins to move into territories where Herod's power is less pronounced so that they don't have this kind of clash that some people thought was coming. So word must have gotten back to Jesus in a way that, hey, maybe this guy actually thinks you're John the Baptist and he's out to get you. But here, the last words is, they went and told Jesus, which connects it to this. Remember, Jesus has a history with John the Baptist. Jesus has earlier said of John the Baptist that he's the greatest among all who were born of women. He had high praise for John, and of course, John is the one that baptizes him to inaugurate his ministry. So there's this relationship. Of course, there's a familial relationship. Some people say they were cousins. Either way, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. He could have withdrawn in sadness. He could have withdrawn just to pray. My sense in looking at it is there is some sadness and there's some time when Jesus wants to be alone with the Father. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go on to their villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. You guys know what happens next? Probably one of the most famous miracles of Jesus. It's recorded in all four Gospels. 
one of the few events that's recorded across the board because of its significance. Bring them here to me, Jesus said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. There's some interesting things going on in this, in this miracle that I think we should highlight too in understanding what Jesus is doing. First of all, let's start at the end. A lot of people have made something out of the fact that there were 5,000 men who were there besides women and children. So what are the estimates of how many women and children must have been there? Well, you've been to a church on a Sunday morning, right? There's like, you know, like one guy to every five other people that are there. Some people say that there were like five or six times, could be four times as many. So this could be the feeding of the 20,000 to the 25,000 out of these simple loaves of bread and these fish. Another thing that people ask is, where did the disciples get the baskets? <laughs> like, were they waiting for this? Actually, it seems that it was customary to carry around a basket of your stuff when you went around. So the 12 baskets were probably the 12 disciples, the 12 disciples of the capital D, had their own baskets and filled the leftovers into their carry sacks of their baskets. Other people disagree and say, no, these were huge baskets, but I, I always wonder where the baskets came from or how they knew that they should bring them along in the first place. But it seems like that was a common thing to bring with them. What's Jesus doing here? Is he just showing off? I mean, why not just send them home? Why does he have to feed them? Is there any significance, for example, to a banquet? Is there any significance to sitting them down on the grass and showing them that he's going to feed them? Some people say, is he showing off? What's he doing? Anyone take a guess what he's doing? I mean, it could be a lot of different things. It could be to show, to represent how Christ will take care of our needs and did take care of our needs. There's something to be said for breaking bread together and kind of that community and, and sharing and just feeding. So so he's taking care of needs, and there is a community. Anything else you guys see in this? I think it's compassion. And ultimately, the whole thing, like he went to be alone after hearing about John the Baptist and the people follow him. And he heals them because he has compassion. He doesn't really say why he doesn't send them away, but you can assume it's the same reason as going to change. He didn't like stop having compassion. The disciples clearly seem to think that he could send them home. Some people have said they're probably too far away, and the reason they think that is because he went to a solitary place, which you, we might think of as a place to be alone. But actually, the correct translation is a desolate place, a wilderness place. He's taken them away from the towns and villages, kind of into the wilderness a little bit. At least, he didn't take them there on purpose. That's where he went to be. And they followed him. They left the towns to go into this wilderness place. So, some people say maybe they're too far from the towns to walk back. It's actually getting dark at this time. The way the text is written, it's, it's actually the dinner hour. So, you know, we think because there's grass, some people say it's springtime, maybe it's, you know, getting dark or something. But he seems intent on feeding them. Jill, you have a comment? I was just going to mention that he did all this to the disciples. They came to him and they asked him, what do we do? And he said, you feed them. And then um, he gives thanks, he breaks the bread, hands it to the disciples, and they hand it out. So they're providing for the people. Yeah, I think he's trying to teach them something as well. Jeremy? It's interesting that, but I think at first he tells them to do it. Like, that would be a weird thing to hear. You feed them. Uh, okay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> one. It is part of the teaching lesson, I think, for them, right? I mean, I think he's trying to say, like, can't you feed them? And when they say that they can't, he says, then I'll feed them. Almost to show them, like, what you think can't be done can be done. That's the sense I get out of why he deliberately says to them something, almost to find out, like, will you be able to do this? Would you get what I'm about to say, or would you even have maybe if I could say, the faith to step up and get this done. There's an echo here of something else, too. Remember, the people have a whole tradition of what is going to be inaugurated by the Messiah. And one of those things is this messianic hope of a future banquet. Jesus will later uh, like allude to it. I think it's in Luke, where he's dining with some people, 
And in the midst of the dining, one of them says, blessed is he who feasts at the table of the Lord, like referring to the future where we're going to be in the Lord's presence and dining at his table. In a way, Jesus is kind of doing the same thing here. The word that he tells them when he tells them to sit down, that word actually is closer to go ahead and take your position of reclining, almost like you're being invited to this banquet, this mass banquet. And the fact that he tells them to sit down is almost like he's inviting them to this table, except the table is out in the wilderness and they're far away. But there's that echo of this is somehow he's taking it upon himself to provide, and it is kind of the allusion to, it's not the actuality, but it's an allusion to the messianic banquet that people might have recognized if they were paying attention. There's another echo here where they're in the wilderness without food, and he's providing bread for them in the wilderness. What does that sound like? Sounds like manna. It sounds like the same kind of concept that there again, an identification with God providing for his people. Now, you know, when scholars look at this, they've got the benefit of a lot of history, and of course they know the story as it goes forward. Some people have tried to read into this, the Last Supper, all sorts of things, but I think that might be taken a little bit further. I don't think it's probably crazy to think that there is these echoes of the Messianic banquet and the provision of God because it's already been alluded to a number of places earlier. Okay? In fact, John's Gospel, when they tell the story, connects it to Jesus talking about being the bread of life and those kinds of things. So there is a closer association. The reason I bring that up is because rarely in the Gospels do you see a miracle being performed without some sort of reason. It's trying to punctuate something. And this seems to be what it's doing there. All right, we got one more miracle that comes up, which is probably, to me, has always been one of the most interesting stories in the Bible. And that is the story of Jesus walking on the water. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. That's kind of curious that right after they collect all this stuff, he makes them get into the boat. There's something going on in the background that you pick up in the other Gospels that isn't quite clear here. And actually, John's Gospel makes a little bit more of an explanation as to what's going on. After Jesus performs this amazing miracle, there's a little bit of pandemonium that starts to happen. The people start to get really excited about what just happened in front of them. And there's this tendency to start, they start proclaiming that he's a prophet, and they start to get very excited And in that excitement, Jesus immediately sends the disciples away. And he himself is going to take off. Now here it says, he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. John's Gospel actually says he fled. He's running up the hill to get away from the crowds and he's making the disciples get into the boat and get the heck out of there pretty quickly. And he just disperses the crowd as fast as possible. Some people note that what's happening is this miracle has caused too much of a stir. Remember, Jesus seems to be slowly unfolding this whole idea of him being the Messiah. He's actually told people already, don't tell anybody what I've done. He's tried to kind of let it out slowly. And this miracle may have excited people too much. Other people say that it was was tempting to the disciples to start to think, oh man, the glory of what we can do. And he doesn't want to emphasize just the miraculous. He wants to let it calm down. All right? What do you think of that? Is that weird? I mean, we skip over these words most of the time. When you look at them, you go, all right, miracle's over, time to go home, take the props down, sets over, like unwinding everything. Next scene, we'll be on the boat somewhere, right? If this was the only account, we'd probably think, okay, transitional statement. Let's just move on. Yeah? Well, not that the miracle itself is pointless, but it seems very odd. Like, the disciples initially came up with the, okay, well, we're done here. They need to get food. Send them away for food. And Jesus' reaction is they don't need to go away. But then he sends them away anyway. After he gave them the food and everybody's full, then he sent them away. And just they rile the crowd up and show them how corrupt they were and how they wanted to make them something he wasn't, make them their bread king. And until he showed them what he could do, look at all those miracles this guy can do. we got we got to take him and make him our king and... And they wanted to do it their way. And did the miracle, he didn't see all that. 
Well, I think if we marry the text in John, we might be able to read that into it. Yeah. What I get out of this, this scripture right now, um, when we're going over it, is I feel like you got to, I think you have to consider Jesus' is his emotions after finding out about the beheading, because he's probably, like, he's probably bummed out. There's John the Baptist, just gets beheaded, and he probably wants to be surrounded by people, uh, and the disciples have already been called out, you know, to go and, like, cast out demons and do these things. And then all of a sudden, now they're asking Jesus to still help out with the food. And it's like, I, I don't know, I have this weird feeling that, like, you can kind of look at the scripture another way, too. Instead of, like, putting all the eyes on Jesus, it's about us. Like, he's like, why don't you guys do it? You guys already have had the powers to, like, cast out demons and to heal and do all this other stuff. And, and then later on... With the boat scripture, it's like he, he walks on water and then he kind of calls Peter out in faith. Okay. Let's connect them because that's where we're going right now. So let me keep going in the story a little bit. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. That word buffeted in the NIV is probably better translated as tormented or tossed around by the waves. They're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Which is a lake, but it's a very large lake. I mean, you can, and when you're in the middle of it, very hard to see the edges of it. It's a pretty large body of water. So they're in the middle of it. During the fourth watch of the night, which, depending on how you interpret it, is probably sometime around three or four in the morning. So he said goodbye to the crowds, probably into the late evening. He spent a considerable time praying if it's the fourth watch of the night suddenly. So he's been up on the mountainside probably six, seven hours or so. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. You know, we've heard so many times the story of Jesus walking on water, that Jesus walks on water, that I think it's kind of one of those interesting things to stop and think of Jesus walking on this large expanse of water towards them. They've already seen a miracle that night. It's late at night, maybe whatever they were doing, the storm has got them freaked out. So they see somebody walking on the water and they immediately assume that it must be a spirit, a ghost. Jesus' response, take courage, it is I. Some people say that the better translation of it is I is I am. What does that sound like? That sounds like a declaration of his divinity, much the same way that in Exodus, God declared his name to be I am. And the literal way it's written is very close to that same sense of I am. It is I is not just an enunciation of like, hi, it's me. But after this very dramatic walk towards the boat, take courage, it is I. I am. Do not fear. I have power over all these things, everything, because I am the I am. Don't be afraid. It's kind of a compassionate don't be afraid, but there's a hint of it in there like, come on, when are you guys going to get it? Then Peter jumps into the story. Always been my favorite part. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, Tell me to come to you on the water. Now, the if, if it is you, is better as since it is you. It's not like, I'm not sure you're really the one. We've seen this hint earlier, even in Matthew 10, like since, not if, but since. Because it's you, I'd like to do this too. And I think that's the best way to look at it. Like, I don't think he's testing God. Like, I don't know if it's really you. If it really is you, then let me come on the water. I actually think Peter's thinking, wow, that's awesome. I can't even wrap my mind around this, but since it's you, since you can do this, tell me to come to you on the water. That's why I kind of stepped right earlier, because here it's Peter's invitation, like he wants to jump in. It's true that Jesus says come, which I think would give Peter even an extra measure of faith. Like, can I do this? And Jesus is saying, yes, come on out. Like that would go, okay, it's going to happen then. I can do this. I'm actually going to do this because he said I could. But it's Peter who wants to do it first. 
He's a little headstrong. He's always been a little impetuous. That's Peter's nature. And here he's going to jump in to see if he can do the same thing. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. To me, it's always been cool that Peter actually did it. Like he was actually walking on the water. This wasn't something that was reserved for Jesus. Sure, Jesus says, yes, you can. Come on out. And maybe that's what boosts his faith to this like historic proportions that allows him to also walk on water. But Matthew records that one of the disciples, an ordinary man, walked on the water. Yeah. But is it really his own faith? So I just kind of always thought of it as like the miracle of God, where God's like, all right, you're human, I'm God, I can do this, you, and, but because you want to, and, and like his faith that Christ like is the Messiah, is God, and he's asking for it, it's like a miracle to me, like, all right, I'm going to like, this is my miracle, now you can do this for like a short time. Because like, I don't, once you've done it once, why couldn't you do it again? And all it takes is faith, obviously it's not just faith. Because if he'd done it once, we'd been like, cool, I can do this, and then he would keep doing it. But that's not the case of his life. Okay, Jeremy? What I don't understand is why only in the Gospel of Matthew is it recorded that Peter actually got out, which the, the tradition and the scholarship has always argued, right, that Mark was the first Gospel written and that it was written by Peter. You would think that there might be some comment about this in it. Why here, and what's the point? Well, look, it's true that Matthew and Luke, they take a lot from Mark or from a common source, okay? But in a lot of instances, Matthew edits and shortens some things that Mark has put in there because he's trying to go for a different emphasis. I mean, we've always acknowledged that the gospel writers all had different audiences in a way, all had, even had different agendas, as you use the word. They were trying for a specific audience and a specific message. Now, we haven't laid down all four Gospels, and we're not doing a Gospel comparative kind of thing. But you're right to bring it up. If you want another thing, I look to try to see, because of the distinction that it's not available in Mark, um, I tried to figure out, is there some sort of like historic, like you know, literary criticism or something of that text? And some scholars believe that it was the story about Peter is actually a tradition that was inserted at some point, but, in, but it, the tradition was already there before Matthew wrote his Gospel, not like... Nobody believes it was written in later. Most people believe it was in the gospel originally, but that's why maybe it wasn't in Mark. I like your point about the fact that if the tradition is right and Mark is actually writing for Peter, that this would be one of those moments that you would put in, right? That Peter would want this noted. Uh, At the same time, you might think that Peter's kind of like, just leave that part out. Because this could be seen both as a triumph of Peter, but mostly it's a failure. And it's the way that Jesus deals with it. I mean, if you look at this, it's kind of a teaching moment. In my opinion, there's another moment that's put in here to show the disciples something. I don't think Jesus just did this for the heck of it. I don't think he did anything that way. And it kind of relates back to where Monique was going. Is it just faith? I mean, he's trying to teach something. When he cries out, Lord, save me, again, I like the word immediately. Like Jesus' first reaction is to reach out his hand and catch him. But as soon as Peter is safe, his next words are, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So if your interpretation were correct, that Jesus had caused a miracle where the water is safe to walk on, for Peter Peter only, that doesn't quite fit with his, his, he's rebuking Peter, he's saying, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I don't think it's about Peter believing he can do it. I think maybe it was like, Peter started to doubt that Christ was like sustaining him in that miracle. You know, like he was doubting God. What, let's read the text though, instead of instead of a what does it say? When he saw the wind, he was afraid. Yeah. It's actually not even that he was walking on water that freaked him out. I mean he's walking, which is even weirder in the story. Like you would think that's the part that should make him go, this just shouldn't be, and he's like going down as he's like it's not that. He's actually walking on the water towards Jesus, so we don't know how far, but we're assuming it's more than a few steps. But when he saw the wind, and remember those waves are in the background, it caused him to be afraid. When he became afraid, he began to sink. And Jesus' response to him, 
about you of little faith. That's a, that Matthew loves to use that. But it's actually more instructive to look at why did you doubt? The word doubt that's used there is why did you suddenly become double-minded? Why did you suddenly become split in your allegiance between believing in God and his power versus being afraid and seeing the waves? That's really what it's implying. Uh, by the way, I'm not going to argue that all it takes is faith. We spent a whole time during our prayer series talking about that there may be other factors. But this is the one story that is most cited by people who look at the all it takes is faith to do amazing things. I just want to give it credit and then say, yes, and you have to look at a lot of other factors and a lot of other verses, which we've already done. But it is unfair to say that Jesus caused a miracle to happen where Peter was just going to walk on the water temporarily because Peter seems to be a very big actor in this second part of the story of walking on water. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to throw this out there. What if we don't have enough faith, you know? Then you would sink. (laughs) Like, maybe God didn't do that because if he did it, you would have been like, oh, I did it. Look at me. I can do this again. I'm self-righteous. Instead of putting your eyes on God like Peter was doing for the most part, you know, uh... I don't know if it's a literal faith thing or what, but I just... Okay, let me connect the two of where Ryan's going, and then we'll close this point off. When we did our talk about miraculous, like just the power of miracles and the power of prayer, one of the things we said is, people will always tell you that something didn't happen or something didn't come true because you lacked the faith. We spent a lot of time debunking that, saying there are many other reasons why something may not happen, other than the fact that you lack the faith. But we never said that you don't need to have any faith, and that's not a factor at all. We actually said just the opposite. It is still a factor. This is one of the places where people get that. So that's all I'm going to do is point out. This is one of the stories where we learn, and the other one is the inability to cast out the demon, that we learn that having faith does impact your ability to do or not do supernatural things. It's not the only factor, as we've said elsewhere, but it is a factor, and in this case, it seems to be the factor. That's all. So let's see what he does with this. After this event, and now the focus is off of Peter, because Peter has kind of been a little bit headstrong, wants to do this, and then ends up sinking in front of all his friends. (laughs) And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. It's one of the few times that Matthew actually uses the phrase, Son of God. I don't think we've seen it yet in Matthew so far. It's a strong statement, especially the word worshipped. They're clearly getting the point, and we've said that one of the things that's consistent in Scripture is the disciples don't get it. But here they're starting to get some clue that he's more than just a prophet or an ordinary man. We, of course, have seen other places where they seem to get it more and some places where they seem to get it less. They haven't quite gotten up to the level of chapter 16 where Peter is going to declare him as the Christ, but they're getting closer. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, or Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. You guys remember the touching the edge of the cloak? Seen that before? Because a woman walked up and just, that's all she did, and Jesus said, I felt the healing power come out of me. So again, this is a much smaller depiction of America. We have the 5,000 men fed. We have the walking on the water, and then we have this kind of summary of all these other miraculous things that are going on when they land at the edge of the lake again. And it kind of continues forward. Matthew is clearly setting up all of chapter 14 to show us amazing works that point to Jesus as Messiah. And maybe even in the words, it is I or I am, even something greater because they worship him for it. Okay, That's kind of where it ends up. All right. I'm done with 14. Let me come back to what we were talking about last week. We were looking at these two questions, and the question was asked, what is the kingdom? Is it synonymous with salvation? Can I just read you a couple of things that we've already read in Matthew? You know, last week, Jeremy made a really good point. He said, if, if we're going to really study the book of Matthew, we shouldn't go outside of it. And today he violated that left and right, you know. 
But if we're just going to stay kind of in the context of Matthew and maybe Mark because it was written earlier, here's some things that we have heard about the kingdom of heaven as Matthew refers to it, but it's the kingdom of God. We said those were two words were synonymous. So just listen to some of these and see if you remember them. Some requirements for this kingdom. We are to repent and believe the gospel in order to enter the kingdom. That's Matthew 4.17. We need to be childlike in our faith if we want to get into the kingdom. That's Matthew 18.3. We haven't gotten there yet. Our righteousness has to surpass the Pharisees and teachers of the law in order to enter the kingdom. That's Matthew 5.20. It's not mere lip service that opens up the door to the kingdom of heaven. We have to do God's will to open up the door. That's Matthew 7.21-23, where he says, the famous one that shakes us all, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The kingdom may demand many sacrifices, like the sacrifice of your marriage and family, as well as your lives and all of our possessions. We looked at that last week in Luke 14, but it's in Matthew as well. Look at Matthew 19. It would be better to cut off your hand or a tempting eye than to sacrifice your ability to get into the kingdom. We saw that in Sermon on the Mount. We have to enter by the narrow gate to find the kingdom, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Jesus, who we earlier said, called John the Baptist the greatest who was born of a woman, also said that he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. That's Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus said that the kingdom of God was so important that we had to almost take hold of it by force if necessary. Matthew eleven twelve. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Bad news for some of us, it says in Matthew 19.12 that some of us should even consider renouncing marriage because of the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God will be taken away from those who claim to be righteous and given to people who produce fruit, Matthew 21.43, that we'll also get to, and Jesus' constant references to fruit. How does that answer what the kingdom of heaven is all about? It shows that throughout the book of Matthew, it is used in a number of ways. So the answer to what is the kingdom, it is understood to be the reign of God sovereign over all things. In fact, here's some things to point out about it that I've put down. Just beginning to look that Jesus announces his ministry as repent for the kingdom is near. Kingdom is announced by John. In Matthew 3, it's announced by Jesus again. In Matthew 4, he goes on to announce it again later. In Matthew 10, the kingdom is connected to the Old Testament promise. It's always been there, but it's a little bit different. And I've cited some verses to see where the kingdom is even described in the Old Testament. Psalms 103.19, Daniel 4.3, the idea that God is sovereign over all things. He rules all things. That is the domain of his kingdom. Jesus comes to announce an eternal kingdom, not an earthly one that was expected. It's to include all people, not just the nation of Israel. And last week I started to explain that the modern way of understanding the kingdom is that when Jesus comes and says the kingdom of God is at hand, that it is beginning, and that the rest of its fulfillment is yet to come. But in fairness, I looked at a couple things this week, and I'll tell you, there are people who don't agree with that, like all things in Christianity. There are people who believe it's entirely in the future, like when Jesus comes back, the kingdom will begin. Those are the mostly German theologians who think that. The English theologians mostly think the kingdom is already going on. Jesus' coming inaugurated the kingdom. And in about the last hundred years, the debate has begun. So what we hear sometimes about this already but not yet kind of concept is relatively new in Christianity, like a hundred years out of 2,000. That we've begun to maybe understand that when Jesus said the kingdom of God is near, in Matthew 12, 28, he actually says it's about to overtake you which has been the one verse that everybody's debated for like about 100 years now, literally. What does it mean when he uses that word in Matthew 12, 28? But either way, the way I could describe it to you when people say, explain this already but not yet concept, the best way I could describe is you hear the words all the time, Jesus conquered the grave. Jesus conquered death. But some of us are like, but how come we're still dying? Jesus conquered sin, but it's still in the world. And the idea is it is begun His work has been complete. It's already started. The kingdom is already beginning, but it's true fulfillment, like when there's no death. 
no more sin, the true victory, the judgment, all those things are yet to be fulfilled, but we're already living in the already. Versus if you were living in Old Testament times, you were still waiting for something to happen. Something has happened. We're in that phase. But the full fulfillment of it is yet to come. Okay? Yeah. I don't agree that the full fulfillment of it is yet to come, but I would, the thing that comes to my mind is Luke 17. I'm almost positive it's Luke 17. He says the kingdom of God is within you. It is true. You're citing the right verse. And he's actually arguing with the Pharisees there, right? He's arguing with them about what the signs are and how they're going to recognize it and all these external things. And he's saying that's not going to happen because the kingdom of God is within you. And despite all the criticism of that word, that is probably the, I mean, people are pretty unanimous. That's the best interpretation of that word. Anytime that word is used, it is within you. But that's what it means when we say the kingdom is born of the spirit. And, and the place where that is explained to us, again, we have to go outside of Matthew to get to that, but it's in John 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is like, I don't understand how a person can be born again. Like, I don't understand that. In John 3, he actually says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You must not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. And then, of course, in that discourse, he goes on to give John 3.16, where he explains, you know, for God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's in the context of this discourse about how do you enter the kingdom. And you're born into the kingdom and born of the Spirit. And that's how, through this belief. Not a simple knowledge, but a belief in which you're placing your, all your life and obedience and you, everything you have on that belief and that trust. Okay? And as Brittany pointed out last week, if you read John into past 316, into 17, 18, 19, you start to see that what he's talking about is actually an action-based faith where you're actually your deeds will change and everything about you will change. In fact, let me read that. He goes on after John 3.16 and 17. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So there's like emphasis on what they're doing. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be plainly seen what he has done has been done through God. So the end of that whole section of John, like after we've got this great proclamation of belief, seems to root that directly into a soil of what you end up doing. Now the second question that we had was, is the kingdom synonymous with salvation. Here's my quick answers. Again, I'm defining the kingdom of God as the eternal rule of the sovereign God over all creatures and things. It is also used to designate that salvation that comes through being born again. But that designation is in John. So we have to be fair that in Matthew, it's not quite as clear. And it's also there in Luke. Last week, remember when we looked at the story of the rich young ruler? We talked about this guy who comes up and says, what do I have to do to get eternal life? Well, if you take away all the text except these two words, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus at the very end says, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? He's the one linking the concepts together. Like this person's talking about eternal life, and Jesus is shaking his head going, how hard is it for people to enter the kingdom of God? He's linking those two concepts. The best way I can explain them to you after looking at it, and my mind just went like crazy after reading all these different people who have been arguing about this for so long, is salvation is the means by which you are born into the kingdom. It's not the, I mean, the kingdom is the rule of God. And whether part of it is here or part of it isn't, it doesn't matter. God is sovereign. He's a king. He has a kingdom. And it's over all things. But we are born into the kingdom through salvation. All right, so... It kind of doesn't matter if, like, the kingdom of God actually equals salvation, but the thing is that those who live in the kingdom of God, like, at the end of it all, when it's, like, the kingdom of heaven and da-da-da-da-da and Christ, it's, like, all the people who are saved. Those are the ones that live in the kingdom of heaven. 
So if you're losing your entrance to the kingdom, that's when you start to think, well, does that mean you lost your salvation or you don't have your salvation? Because only those who are saved, it's not the kingdom of God that saves you or whatever. It's like the belief in Christ and all of this, and that's what gets you into, like, it's your salvation that gets you into the kingdom of heaven. So, like, if he's laying down all these things that keep you out of the kingdom, then maybe those are things that take away your salvation. That's why it's such an important question. And so my question would be, is there any Christian scholarship, anything that alludes to the fact that you can be saved and not live in the kingdom of heaven? Because if not, then pretty much the two things are like hand in hand. Again, it depends on what you mean by the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. But if you mean that it is under the subject of the authority of God, if you use it in that sense, like the eternal sense, then all things are subject to the kingdom of God. right? But if you're using it in the sense you're using it, which is the future kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven and glory that's going to come, if you use it in that way, then salvation, there's no way to get there except through salvation. Let me address something you had last week a big problem with. You were talking about the, the, the security of salvation, like can you lose your salvation? You know, you guys always send me on more stuff than I ever want to look up in a lifetime, you know. But here's where this comes out. There are about four verses that are pretty solid for the you can't lose salvation. There's probably 40 and more that, that don't say anything like that. Jeremy would normally be the one that would say, whether you can lose your salvation or not is a theology that you get, that you start to believe, that you construct out of trying to look at all these verses and put them together. And I think that's right. That there's a difference between does the text say that or are we trying to make sense of it all and that's what we start to believe, right? I'm not saying that, that you can lose your salvation and I'm not saying that you can. I'm saying we're not covering that issue because, again, I have another book that has like, you know, it's like you know, 270 pages of people arguing back and forth about whether you can lose your salvation. And that's just one book, by the way, that has four people in it. Some people would say it's that you were never in in the first place. Some people would say like, that your fruit, your actions that come afterwards really indicate whether you had the true spirit born again or not. Because I know some people who believe so strongly that once the spirit is in you, it, it can never leave. And they believe in the security of salvation to such a degree that when you tell them, well, what do these verses mean? They'll say, it just means you never really had it. Look, I, it's a theology. I don't want to debate it. What I'm saying is there are more than just a simple clear-cut explanation. If it was clear-cut, then people would just believe A or B. They wouldn't have like A to Z on this view. And it's been one of the most controversial views that people go back and forth on. But to show the kind of, not to cheapen grace like we said last week, but to show the kind of thing. A couple of you, we talked last week about the story of Zacchaeus, which is found in Luke 19. And Zacchaeus had exactly this kind of thing. He's like the rich young ruler. He is a very wealthy tax collector who's cheated everybody. And when Jesus sees him in a tree and he calls him down and says, I want to eat with you, the crowd begins to mutter, look who he's going to eat with. And he goes to Zacchaeus' house, and Zacchaeus is so overwhelmed. We don't know what happened. We don't know what Jesus said to him. We don't know what story. The next thing we know in the story, Zacchaeus stands up and says, Lord, today I'm giving away half of my wealth to the poor. And if there's anybody I've cheated, I will pay back four times as much. And Jesus' immediate response is, today salvation has come to this house. Yeah, there was, I mean, it was the action. I mean, do we get salvation because we give away half and, give, and pay back people we've ripped off four times? Do you get salvation because you give everything away? These are the ways they're written, but in the end, if you look at it, it indicates like he has been so changed that Jesus can identify the birth of the Spirit in him, that can identify that he's been born again because his actions would have no other explanation. All right? Either that or he's heard the story of the rich young ruler and says, I better give away half before the guy asks me for all of it. You know, like, like preemptory strike. You know, it's one or the other. But I actually think it's probably more about the transformation. Yeah. I think why this question is difficult to answer, it flies in the face of the idea that all you have to do is say some little prayer and you've got your golden ticket and you're good to go. And that... That, that in and of itself is a theology. The fact that you can just say this prayer and you're good, you're, you're golden. I mean, that's a theological statement. It might not be a biblical statement, and whatever the word biblical means. But, and I, and I think it's just highlighted by the fact that you've got these stories, especially in Matthew, and you've got these sayings, you've got these instances where people are getting in for different reasons. Not because they follow the script, or not because you're seeing a change in their life, but it comes from something different than just uh, 
the, the things that we typically associate today in our, even, or in our culture with becoming a Christian. It's, it's, not this, it's different, and I think that's why it strikes a chord. Okay, let me close our discussion this way. I agree with you that it's, pro, it's a theology. But I also want to point out in fairness that that theology is based on a few verses that seem pretty clear. All right, we can go over them, you know, a couple of Romans, a couple in, you know, like John. I mean, and I know your response would probably be those are more theologically written in the first place. I agree. But, you know, we didn't just harmonize them from the air. Like, we actually saw verses that imply that. But at the same time, as I explained to Monique last time afterwards, there's also these verses that go exactly the other way. And this is purely speculation on my part, but it's on a belief that you guys know that I love watching Jesus create tension. Like when you hear words like, truly those people will say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I never knew you. Like, I can't imagine why you would make that statement unless you wanted people to always feel the tension between the cheapness of that grace, as Bonhoeffer would say, versus like the seriousness of what it is that's going on. I I think that's why it's there. I don't think Jesus made it easy. I think he put down different ways so that we would wake up every day and die again to self and follow him. I think that's why all those difficult sayings are there for us as well. That's just my belief. Right? And I think that's why we're never going to respond and just make it four laws or one prayer or all those things because, again, you put Jesus into a box and he just has this way of keep growing and he'll never fit because he, just, he is God. So that's the best I can formulate with it, but I hope that kind of at least responds to some of the questions that came up last time because I felt like those are important enough to cover. And if you want all the books on the kingdom of God and all the people who say different things, and, you know, as Jeremy will tell you, half of them are in German, and I mean, I just, you know, it's getting too much. You know, at some point it's like, okay, I'll just go back to John 3.16. I like that one. It's easy. <laughs> that one seems easier. Let's just say the prayer together. Ready? Let's, uh, let's pray and close up. Let's do that. Lord, I marvel at your mystery, and I barely comprehend it. It's so difficult sometimes to even respond to questions or talk about these things because they raise more questions, and maybe that's exactly the way it should be. Lord, if you want us to constantly wonder and be amazed at your wisdom and your words, if you want us never to feel comfortable that we think we've got you right where we want you, then it's working. Lord, thank you that you're a God that we can pursue our entire lives and yet we feel like we've barely moved an inch. Lord, whatever your understanding of the kingdom is and what you were trying to communicate, Lord, and whatever that is, Lord, I thank you that people in this room have confessed their faith in you, that they truly believe that you are God. So, Lord, let us never forget that once we're born of the kingdom, that we don't, that doesn't end there. We have a lifelong goal to becoming more and more like you. And that was not an easy thing. Lord, let us look for even the difficult things and the sacrifices we have to make to become more like you. Pray this in your name. Amen.